This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlinderfritz. Uh, my guest today is my co-host, Peter Land. We're going to be discussing the first chapter of Let Us Dream by Pope Francis. Hi, Peter. Glad to have you here again. Hey, Malcolm. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's great to join you. So as I started reading uh, chapter one here, uh, a thing that immediately caught my attention was on page 11, where he says that you have to really understand reality, you have to go out to the margins. And that's, of course, a big theme of Pope Francis's pontificate. And it's something that we've uh, discussed on this uh, podcast before, at least a few times, about, you know, really uh, having a mind for the poor and marginalized. And of course, the marginalized can be marginalized in many different ways and for many different reasons. What really uh, is interesting to me here is that he's not just saying, you know, our Christian duty calls us to go out to the margins, but that we can't actually understand uh, reality unless we go to the margins. And then a little further on, he says that we can't just go to the margins in some kind of uh, abstract way, that we have to do it uh, concretely. So he seems to be saying that only those who actually go out in solidarity to the marginalized are you know, in touch with reality as it, as it truly is. And then he also points out that he doesn't mean, just a little farther on on page 18, he's saying he doesn't mean that we should have a patronizing attitude, that we should, um, you know, be um, seeing ourselves as those who are going to help the marginalized, although we're supposed to help them, but that the marginalized themselves have to be seen as um, actors that can influence uh, events. And I think that's a really important uh, distinction as well. Malcolm, you mentioned the word solidarity, and that's a theme for me that continues to reoccur and resurface as I read um, the writings of Pope Francis. Pope Fran he has a heart for the poor, and he's encouraging us all to, as you mentioned, go out to the margins. And solidarity is a big part of that. And what I, what I reflect on as I think about what he's saying is that solidarity requires contact with people. It requires a commitment to being with them and to encountering them where they're at. We can't really, I mean, solidarity doesn't really happen in the abstract at the end of the day. We can say we're in solidarity with the poor. And I think there is something to, to the saying, live simply so that others may simply live. But Pope Francis is really focusing on this element of, of going out and meeting people and letting our experience of them, letting their reality, their suffering, touch us and change us and inspire us to, to seek a greater good, to seek new possibilities, to seek a life that includes, includes them in our world and in the world around us, not just um, a discarded element of reality. So that to me requires, it's inviting an incredible change of thought and really a conversion to our way of thinking and being in American culture. I wanna give an example of um, my time in college as reflective of this. Um, I, went to, I went to Boston College and I had a really blessed college experience but one of the things that they spoke of at Boston College, the 
staff and students, it was kind of a joke, was the Boston College bubble. You know, we, we kind of lived in this, this neat campus bubble in which everything was kind of provided for us that we needed. Um, it was a world unto itself that at times was in com like completely removed from the world around it, around it. You know, the world of Boston, even the neighborhoods that surrounded Boston College. Um, we never really had to go and meet those places, meet people outside of our college campus. Um, and the world was pretty ideal in a lot of ways, unless you had like an adventurous spirit, you know, you could just spend all your time on campus. Um, it wasn't until my second or third year that I really began to be inspired to do service work. And Boston College is known for that, um, encouraging students to, to embrace service as an ethic, as a part of their college experience. And so I started going downtown into the city and meeting, um, joining different nonprofit organizations that were serving the homeless population, as well as low income areas and low income families. And Malcolm, I'll tell you that, that going to the margins for me was transformative. It really, it brought a new perspective to my life and all these new people that had so many challenges and difficulties that were unknown to me. First of all, it made me realize how much I took for granted at the time. And so it um, gave me a new sense of appreciation for the privileges that I had, but also that those privileges needed to be put at the service of people who did not, who did not have, who went without. Um, so, you know, Pope Francis says on page 12, to go to the margins in a concrete way, as in this case, allows you to touch the suffering and the wants of a people, but also allows you to support and encourage the potential alliances that are forming. The abstract paralyzes, but focusing on the concrete opens up possible paths. What I really valued at Boston College, I mean, they, they did talk a lot about theory and the need for social justice, and they, they exposed you to, um, in the academic world, to inequalities that we needed to be aware of. But they also really invited us to go and encounter those inequalities and injustices. And in encountering them, if you encounter them, as Pope Francis says, with an open heart, you're changed in a way in which you can't go back. You can't just go back. I mean, you can, but it's, it would be like denying a part of your heart and yourself. If you just went back to the bubble and forgot about who and what you experienced on the peripheries of society. And so that for me is a little example of something of what he's talking about is in going to the edges and meeting people, we are changed, but we're also given an opportunity to find new fulfillment and some kind of lasting joy in putting our lives at the service of another and, and in, in trying to build a new reality that includes them. It's, it's like this meaningful exchange that God has blessed in which we're both necessary. We both need each other. And we, it's like, we, you can't go forward um, without, without the other. And, and I think too, you know, you, you mentioned that he's, he says that we have to meet them where they're at. And, and that doesn't, of course, just mean 
doesn't even primarily mean geographically. Um, and I think that's really key because if we're not, you know, if we're, if we're only coming to these meetings on our own terms, if we're not willing to have the open heart and be challenged in our assumptions as well, then there won't really be any dialogue. And dialogue is a big subject of this book all through it. On uh, page 18, he's talking about, um, uh, he goes on, he goes on. So he talks about, you know, like um, that we're not supposed to patronize, but then he goes on, on page 21, he talks about discernment, which is of course a key Christian idea. And he talks about not making immediate decisions. He talks about compromise. And interestingly, he says that um, I'll probably, I'll just read the quote here. To enter into discernment is to resist the urge to seek the apparent relief of an immediate decision and instead be willing to hold different options before the Lord, waiting on that overflow. You consider reasons for and against, knowing Jesus is with you and for you. You feel inside yourself the gentle pull of the Spirit and its opposite. And over time, in prayer and patience, in dialogue with others, you reach a solution, which is not a compromise, but something else altogether. I want to be clear about this. In the Christian life, when you're seeking God's will, there are no compromise solutions. Does this mean a Christian can never compromise? Of course not. Sometimes it's the only thing you can do to avoid a war or some other calamity. But a compromise does not resolve a contradiction or conflict. In other words, it's a temporary solution, a holding pattern that allows a situation to mature to the point where it can be resolved by a path of discernment at the right time seeking God's will. So that, you know, in this, this encounter with others, so, someone who you see as, as someone very different from yourself in some way, um, one, one way is just, you know, to, to close your heart to them, to adopt a position of conflict. But there can also be seen to be kind of a different way out, where you create some kind of compromise, where both sides give up something that they hold or, or bend their own principles so that there is no more conflict. And he's saying that might be necessary at first because otherwise there might be conflict. There might not be enough openness. But the goal, of course, is to come to a deeper, fuller solution and one that can't necessarily be seen ahead of time before you come and meet and walk with the other person. And that's true whether you're reaching out to the marginalized poor, to political and ideological opponents, or even so like this project is all about building community. And a community needs to be able to have that ability to come together, to hold their disagreements together, and through holding those disagreements together, let the Holy Spirit work through it and work them out. Otherwise, if they choose the path of conflict, the community will come apart. But if they choose the path of compromise, they'll just bury those conflicts, and they'll eventually reemerge in some more uh, disastrous form later on. Another um, beautiful aspect of uh, the Jesuit education that I received was the opportunity to go on what was called service immersion trips. And these were week or two week long um, experiences abroad or in our own country in the Appalachian region to area or Native American reservations to areas that were very much considered um, third world underprivileged, um, you know, uh, broken areas. But I, I think I, I bring this up because the approach of the service immersion trip was very different from, 
from the approach of like a mission trip that I've heard about from other Christians. I think sometimes in mission trips, um, the group kind of goes with an agenda. They, they have a, an agenda to kind of advance the gospel in a particular way um, to, to kind of um, bring, bring what they have to the people who are in a less fortunate situation. Um, so there's kind of like a pre-planned program. Now, I'm not saying all mission trips are like, I haven't been on a quote-unquote mission trip, but that's sometimes what I've heard. And the service immersion model, which um, is very Ignatian, really the idea was to, to go and be at the service of people without an agenda attached. And I, I really appreciated that. Like just going, being available and listening to where other people are coming from, listening to their hurts, to their stories, to their current situation, um, listening and, and trying to respond, but not trying to just offer answers. I think that's something that we all fall into this trap, especially in America. Like it's a, it's a nation of so many commentators and everybody's got an opinion, everybody's got an answer you know, this is why that's wrong and this is how it's going to be fixed. I think the key with the service immersion model, which very much reflects what you were just talking about, Malcolm, and what Pope Francis is highlighting, is that it, it enters into dialogue. And in order for there to be dialogue, there needs to be an openness of heart and a listening spirit. And it needs to invite the voice of the other to be actually heard and not just like listen to in order to like appease them and then tell them our own ideas and answers, but rather to be really open to learning. Like we can learn from everybody and especially the people we are meeting on their own ground. That should be our first stance really, I think, is that we're going to learn. And then out of that encounter, um, how can we respond to the needs that are being brought before us? So I think it requires an attitude of humility um, an attitude of kind of um, receptivity and like that we're a collaborative spirit, but really not one in which we're advancing something predetermined or imposing a blueprint on anybody. It's like, I think that allows the spirit, like as Pope Francis says, to kind of emerge through discernment to create the new possibilities that to our minds, we, we couldn't have fathomed beforehand. Like Pope Francis talks about how the spirit makes all things new. And I guess that's one of the most important things for me too right now is that the reason we need prayer, continuous prayer, so that we're open to the pathways that God can show us when we bring to God a receptive, open heart and not just kind of like, bring, you know, all our, our vocal prayers, you know, and to the chapel and it's bam, and then we're on to the next thing. It's like, no, we gotta, as Pope Francis says, like, just come with like this lit candle with this um, mind of like openness to receiving and like letting God show us the way. Um, so I, I think that's, that, that, that focus on discernment really is such an important theme for um for this conversation about what what you're doing here malcolm but also for our time right now in america and this kind of critical moment 
of uh, what COVID's bringing about. You know, Peter, I just actually came across two really interesting examples of this kind of uh, going with a willingness to learn from people instead of, you know, presuming right away that you have all the solutions yourself. Um, one actually involves uh, Jesuits. It involves um, Father Matteo Ricci, who was the first Jesuit missionary to enter China. And he realized that to evangelize the Chinese, he was going to have to learn from them first. He was going to have to learn all about their culture. He was going to have to learn how to present Christianity in their context, in their language. Um, because if he didn't, he would just be seen as a foreigner. He would be ignored. So he adopted the cultures. He learned their philosophy. He used their philosophy as a bedrock for a new um, presentation of the Christian message, much as St. Thomas Aquinas had used Aristotle in the West. And he, he had more success than other missionaries who um, just came in and just presented Christianity as they, exactly as they had learned it. And then the other one is I was reading about city planning, which uh, you know we've talked on this podcast a little bit before about how our cities are often very dysfunctional. They don't promote community. So the temptation then for a new urban planner is to use their power and their expertise to just go bulldoze whole blocks of city and build something new from scratch. And that is almost certain to be a new slum within a few decades. And it'll be just as bad as the slum that got bulldozed the first time around. And then some new city planner will come in and raise yet another swath of city and try to do it over again. And this uh, book was saying that the import first important step of really successful city planning that'll create a city where actual community can grow up is to really you know walk with the people, literally walk the neighborhood, talk to the people, and find out what they need. What do they think is wrong with their neighborhood? What do they need help with? And then your expertise, your political power that an urban planner might have can be put to good use because you know by themselves, they might not have the technical skills, the influence, the resources to do anything about the problems. But your work has to be um, defined by the actual experience of the people on the ground. And not only that, even you know, like once you've got you know, a handle on what really is needed, you still can't break out the bulldozers and just clear everything away. You have to make small incremental improvements, little projects here and there, little improvements, and then let things build on one another. Going slowly so that any mistakes aren't disastrous. And that's um, in, in many areas of life, as you said, that's foreign to the American mentality. Um, we're, we're always in a hurry and, and very sure that we've got a good practical, you know, like that we value practicality, but actually it's more practical to go slow and to have that kind of listening spirit and that kind of discernment that Pope Francis is talking about. So even, even aside from the obvious spiritual dimension, it's just even good uh, common sense too, as far as creating a desirable outcome. It makes me think of um, one of my friends had this remark about backpacking and camping out. He said that um, one of the reasons he loves it is um, setting up a tent as you're hiking is that you can't just set up your tent anywhere. You're not really in control of the situation. You're, there's freedom and flexibility, but you really have to work with the landscape that um, the site gives you, 
that you know Mother Earth kind of gives us at on some level. And so there, there requires like a humility to to watch, to observe, to listen to the to the landscape around us, and then to um, you know make make um, or you know pitch your tent in the best way possible. Um, I, I'm also reminded of this guy, uh, this author, James Howard Kunstler. He wrote this book called The Geography of Nowhere, and um, he's written a lot on urban design and the urban landscape of America and how dysfunctional and inefficient it is. Um, but the geography of nowhere struck me because he was saying how we just kind of have decimated actual landscapes and like you said, bulldozed and created strip malls across the country that cater to the automobile and to easy access to material goods. And it's like, a bunch of warehouses on either side of the road, basically, that have no unique identity, that don't reflect in any way the natural landscape um, that it's situated within. It kind of destroys the landscape and creates a place that you could find anywhere, basically. And that's what he said America has become. You can drive across the country and find the same exact place planted in different places all across the country that are radically different from each other. From a desert like landscape in Phoenix to the northeast American forests and you know uh, everything, so I struck by that. It's like wow, yeah, like this going on this theme of just kind of like blueprint model, just like raise everything, set our own agenda, and then this place becomes a place lacking beauty, lacking any meaningful connection or attachment. When you are going back to incremental little changes which I think would prevent anything like that from happening. It makes me think of how probably Europe and European villages and towns and even cities developed over time. You know, we as Americans may look at them and be like, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Um, you know, we like our fully planned out grid like cities, but there is something lacking in a, in a character in, in that kind of design. And in Europe, I think it's much more natural. Like these, the cities expanded in a slow way to accommodate a growing population, but in a way that was probably much more natural, um, you know, uh, based on the landscape, like what made the most sense. And they, in a way, probably reflect uh, a symbiotic relationship with the world around it. So two, two themes come up is, is um, slowness, which you mentioned, um, you know, being slow with our decisions, you know, dis we have to discern, we have to be open to possibilities. I mean, I know it may we have to also act decisively at times, but we shouldn't rush into making decisions without any kind of discernment, without any collaborative process. And then um, I guess intentionality, you know, comes into play for all this, you know, de being deliberate and intentional, like, this is not just an immediate gratification. This is not just for an immediate need, but we're thinking about future generations. We're thinking holistically, you know, how will this serve not only the community now, but for generations to come? So I, I think this, this idea of dialogue, openness and discernment plays out on multiple levels. You know, it plays out on the individual realm. It plays out on the, the social realm. And then also in, our, in relationship with our geography, um, it really is, is inviting us to a whole new perspective on how we're approaching life, you know, slowing down, 
cutting out a lot of the excess activity, cutting out the entertainment, all the things that are really unnecessary and really re-engaging the places in which we live, you know, re-engaging in an intentional way without um, like answers, like you said, but just kind of like welcoming and meeting people and letting relationships grow. And I think as, as you either quoted or I read in Pope Francis, like possibilities, small possibilities will begin to open up. And that's a beautiful thing to see, like in Philadelphia, you know, um, properties that have been abandoned are now being transformed into community gardens. I think it's just a great example of something of the neighborhood coming together to turn a negative space, a space where there's been drug activity, violence, trash, turning it into something beautiful that will bring about a greater good for everybody. You know, produce, a place where community gathers, a place of meaningful work and engagement with the land, you know, a place in which people are invested in. Um, it's one example. I'm sure you have multiple examples in, in Denver as well. I mean, that, these things are happening throughout the country and it's also ways to bring people together. I think that's like, how do we, how do we come together more with people that are on the periphery of our own lives, but also on the periphery of society? Like we need to have meeting places. Yeah. The, uh, you know, it's, it's a very lucky thing that, as you're saying, Pope Francis is saying that, you know, like you don't have to have the answers to start, that the answers come through the process, that that process is more important, actually, than the than having the answer ahead of time. And that's lucky for us because, you know, like looking out at the problems that we're facing, I certainly don't have, don't like see an answer, a, a clear, you know, concrete answer. But that is okay, as Francis is saying, like you don't have to worry about that. The uh, and, and that reminds me, too, um, is reading, uh, I think it was Christopher Alexander. Christopher Alexander is an architect um, of a very different sort who talks about really understanding the deep principles that make spaces live. And he talked about this, this uh, graduate class where there's this whole room full of zealous young architects, and the instructor says, okay, the job is to design a building. And, you know, all the architects get going, you know, like the building has to fit these specifications. So they start designing their buildings. And he approaches the instructor and says, you know, like, uh, I don't, you know, like you left out a piece of information. Where is the building supposed to be located? And the instructor's like, you know, surely that doesn't matter, right? And he's saying, well, like, if I was going to design a building, I think it would make a lot of difference where it was supposed to be. And he used this story you know, like you were saying, like the, the same landscapes across the country, it's because they weren't probably designed by anyone who lived within 100 miles of them. That these, yeah, like coming, coming at it with an answer that's so complete, I mean, like you have to have some, like obviously Pope Francis has a certain set of solutions and he also criticizes certain other ideas that he thinks are detrimental. So you have to come into it with, you know, some idea. But if you come into it with an idea that's, you know, fully formed, like that, building architectural plan that's already just to be plopped down on a supposedly empty slate, then you're probably going to miss a lot of the answers. So, um, you know, he's saying, uh, it's part of the, part of the answer that he's saying we need to approach is, uh, an economy of solidarity, an economy that brings everyone in so that, that doesn't marginalize people. And one of the, um, one of the ways he talks about is he talks about the Jubilee year debt forgiveness. And uh, forgiving debts is, of course, uh, a very fundamental both to the Jewish Old Testament and to the uh, Gospels. 
Um, you know, in the Our Father, when we say, you know, forgive us our trespasses, one way to translate that would actually be forgive us our debts. Um, we're all in debt to someone, and we're lucky that God forgives the debt. But looking out at our, uh, our society, what's notable is a huge amount of indebtedness, which can really, really uh, jeopardize people's lives. And I, you know, I don't have the skills to do this, so I'm throwing this out here since, you know, if someone who's listening to this has the skills to make this happen, I read about a very interesting group called the Rolling Jubilee. And what they did is they went and bought debt. Because your debt, you know, might be worth, say, $1,000 if that's, you know, like if you have a $1,000 debt, but that debt is not worth $1,000 to someone who's going to buy it, some bank who's going to buy it. It's worth a lot less than that. In some cases, uh, you can buy up debts from the other side, you know, as if you were an investor or a bank. You can buy up debts from the other side for a few cents on the dollar. So this group went up and bought debts that were located in a particular impoverished area. And then instead of trying to call them in, trying to make, you know, get the interest payments to make money off these debts, they just destroyed them all. They sent everyone whose debt they bought a letter saying that this debt is, is written off and destroyed all that debt, thus helping to revitalize the area. Because suddenly, everyone's resources weren't going to a distant bank that was bleeding off these interest payments. Suddenly, there were all these possibilities because a debt had been forgiven. And that's like what it would look like on the economic landscape. How can we Catholics create a society of jubilee, a society of forgiveness? But then obviously, in, in interpersonal relationships, if we're building a community, um, I was just talking to someone who's building a community in Minneapolis. And he was saying that like, one of the goals that a community has to have is to not keep tabs. And that's something hard because our culture teaches us to keep tabs. We don't like to ask for help because then we're indebted. If someone does something for us, we better pay them. Mm -hmm. And we have to forgive debts, whether we, you know, if, if, we're, if we're holding on to them. In a community, the members have to be able to forgive debts to just ignore the whole concept of debt and repayment. And instead, operate out of the language of gift. That what they give, whether it's tangible stuff or less tangible uh, spiritual realities, what they give to the other members is a gift, not something that's going to indebt the other person. There's that great prayer from St. Ignatius. Um, the generosity prayer. Let me just read this. Lord, teach me to be generous. Teach me to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and not to seek for rest, to labor and not to ask for reward, except to know that I am doing your will. And the line that came to me as you were just speaking, Malcolm, was, to give and not to count the cost. But this whole prayer really reflects that idea of not keeping tabs, not counting the cost, like giving freely. Freely have we received, freely are we to give, says the Lord. And it really is, um, I think, an unfortunate tendency in our, in our culture that I think I'm guilty of, that we're all, we've all been exposed to. But this need to like, always get even. You know, I paid for lunch this time, but he's got to pay for lunch next time. Right. <laughs> or, you know, um, I gave him 
20 bucks and I'm still waiting for that 20 bucks. You know, I'm not going to say anything, but I know it's, I've counted it. Know. You know, it's kind of like this taxpayer mentality that I think the apostle Matthew, like as an archetype embodies, you know, this, the, uh, or the idea of a taxpayer, forget about his role, but the idea of this taxpayer is like one who counts money and makes sure that you have paid all that you owe. And they'll, they'll, you know, count to the very last penny. And that is definitely not the way of God and definitely not the way, yeah, of mercy, you know, God forgiving us our debts. Um, and it's not the way I, as Christians we're called to, to live together. Like what a beautiful thing if we can just continue to give out of our bounty and not think about, you know, the consequences or, or, or getting back what we've given. Um, that to me is, is a real ideal that we need to kind of recover as a community, like, and just sharing, sharing our goods, like not having so much ownership over our own things, but realizing this, what I have is a gift from God and I am a steward over it. And I will also be called to account for how, what I've done with what has been given to me, the wealth and the resources and the gifts God has bestowed on me, I will be accountable. Did I share them bountifully? Did they produce a great harvest? Did they multiply? I think as we're generous, generosity multiplies. As we're kind, as we're patient, these things multiply. It's like the spirit works through us when we don't have this agenda or need to get get what is ours. You know, like what is what can we say is really ours? You know, as St. Paul says, we came into this world without anything and we'll leave this world without anything. And so in the midst, what are we going to do? Are we going to help create um, a more generous, more bountiful world? So I think for, for community to really happen, there's there's got to be that element. People need to work towards that, towards a sharing of goods. And um, those who can't afford to maybe invest as much to be forgiven and to be still included. Part of this uh, conversation is something I wanted to, I guess, just revisit. I think it goes along with what we're talking about is that reality is really at the margins. You know, I, I just want to quote Pope Francis here. You have to go to the edges of existence if you want to see the world as it is. I've always thought that the world looks clearer from the periphery. But in these last seven years as Pope, it has really hit home. You have to make for the margins to find a new future. When God wanted to regenerate creation, he chose to go to the margins, to places of sin and misery, of exclusion and suffering, illness and solitude, because they were also places full of possibility where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's a beautiful insight to me from Pope Francis about that which is true. You know, um, in the gospel, we saw that the leaders of the Jewish nation, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, the scribes and the elders, they basically rejected the Lord. Um, they were the religious authorities of the nation and perhaps content with the status quo, content with their authority and recognition and power, um, they, they perceived the newness that Jesus brought as a threat to their place in society. 
and therefore not only excluded him to the margins, but as St. Paul said, you know, um, we'll let us go outside the city. They, he was crucified outside the city. There's a lot of meaning in that. You know, he wasn't, he was thrown outside the city of Jerusalem, the, you know, the center of the Jewish people. Um, so I think about this, you know, like I was talking about the Boston College bubble, like it wasn't really reality. You know, I, I left that bubble and I encountered the reality of so many other people who didn't have those things. And, you know, the, the bubble was almost like propped up by so much money, you know, so many resources, so many things that could easily be taken away at some point um, from any one of us. It's like you had to have money to be able to attend and, and so much money needed to go in to keep that bubble um, maintained. So what I love is the possibilities that can emerge on the edges of existence. And it's something that I've seen now in our in American cities, you know, in, in very poor places, people moving into those poor places and beginning to help um, regenerate those places. Now, sometimes that comes with this, the negative consequences of gentrification, um, which is unfortunate. But Pope Francis is also giving us this call, like he's giving us a clear sign of his own discernment and the discernment of the church that we are called in a certain way to find newness on the peripheries with those who are not only down and out, but where places of suffering and misery. I mean, we, we find those places of suffering and misery really everywhere, but in a particular way, um, in a way that's really been discarded by um, the elites of our world on uh, the, the peripheries of our world. So, I, you know, I keep thinking about this, Malcolm, like, wow, how much can suburban America be transformed in, into a Christ, like a truly Christian place? Because first of all, not a lot of poor can afford to live in suburban America. And, and suburban America is so content. And I really don't see a lot of new possibilities emerging from that place. And then I also think about our, our cities, like I'm, I'm right outside Philadelphia. And while there's been a lot of changes and new development going on in the city, it seems like it's not the development, it's not the direction that Pope Francis is really calling us to, you know, a direction that includes the poor, a direction that um, is collaborative, that is community oriented. Um, it's almost like catering to this new yuppie world, um, this wealthy kind of party-like atmosphere that I'm seeing emerge, at least in certain neighborhoods of Philadelphia. Um, so, you know, part of, part of this reflection, just bear with me for a second, makes me think of small town America. I really, you know, as I traveled across the country, I saw small town America decimated and empty with people still living there, down and out, um, addicted to drugs. Now I'm not saying, oh, we all need to make for small town America, but it does make me think of the possibilities that are really there. Um, a, to encounter a world that is in need, um, to learn from them, to learn the history of these places and to work with them in, in, in building a new future, not to just go in with our own agenda. You know, I think about, I think about small town America as a place that's very much peripheral right now, that's been on the decline, that, but that still has the possibility of community, of renewal, of sustainability, and a new future that where, where Christian communities could really grow in a very authentic way. 
Um, again, I don't want to rule out other possibilities, Malcolm, but I, I don't know. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I think there is something to that, um, that sub- suburban America, you know, we were talking about city planning earlier, and this is another aspect of that, that suburban America by its very form um, is a world isolated from reality. And that all too often, as you're saying, um, the, the cities, the downtown cores um, are either dysfunctional, but when they're, when they're redeveloped, it's often done in such a way as to try to eliminate the poor as much as possible. I mean, right here, uh, homelessness has grown so much recently. And some cities around the country have decided that what they'll do to solve the problem is they'll just criminalize sleeping outside. That, that's what they'll do. And thereby, you know, people who have landed on the street because oftentimes because their rent ran out or whatever happened to them, um, they'll just criminalize it. That's all. They'll, they'll just say people are forbidden to sleep out in public. Well, yeah, obviously those those areas too are not going to, um, you know, not going to have that experience of reality. So yeah, trying to find those places where there still is the ability to to come into contact. I've been actually pondering that myself. Um, I live, you know, kind of on the suburban fringe. It's not like um, nearer to the city, older suburbs that are still perhaps a little more real but still you know a, a dysfunctional pattern and wondering how um how much can be done uh, just because of the fact that you know like within a people who are going to form community probably have to live within at most a mile of each other um because as I was talking with some friends to build a community you need uh spontaneous interactions you can't all if every interaction has to be planned community spirit will never grow up there has to be those random encounters and um, really just within, within many kinds of suburban development, there isn't enough people within your mile of walkability. Um, you, you, need, you need something a little denser, but then at the same time, uh, in, a, in a downtown city core, it can be too expensive, uh, too, too prone to disruption by, as you said, with people with their own agendas doing whatever they want. And, and you're right, some small towns that are now have been left behind I still do have the the bones that could be um, renewed. But as you said there, of course, the danger with anyone trying to renew an area from outside is that they can do just what Pope Francis is saying not to do, you know, to impose. Um, and that, that too, that's making me think of just a more general idea for community. And this, is, this seems to be a common theme in all my interviews I've been doing with community members. That one way to make sure that your community does not succeed <laughs> is to go into it with the idea that you're pulling yourself together and away from all those folks, the people who are not as good or as uh, not, not your type of whatever type that might be. And of course, that was seen in suburbia where the different people are people who are poor or often people who are of ethnic or racial minorities. But a community can do it um, based on kind of like spiritual merit. Um, I remember uh, Jack Sharp with the Bethlehem Books community was saying, you know, like that they're not, you know, like they don't see themselves as like the elite. But and he was saying, if a community does see itself as kind of like the elite folks all coming together in their own little world, that'll definitely do the community in. And that's been, you know, like over and over again, that's been this theme that the community has to be open to um, different people, to people who are who are just there, who are not um, 
maybe who are not even members of the community at all, but who live in the same area. Yeah, I don't. As far as the question of like where where community building can be successful, uh, that's something that I've uh, been given a lot of thought to. And uh, I guess I'm Pope Francis would say I'm um, in uh, on the right track because I don't have an answer really for that question. Praise God! Yeah, we're all we're contemplating these things, and I think sharing our experiences, and hopefully um, those listening will continue to share their experiences with us and with you, Malcolm and the people you, you interview, your, the communities that are forming, they can give us feedback about what they've experienced and what's worked and what's, what's not. But I think what, what's happening here is a conversation, a dialogue in which hopefully we're growing and learning and at the same time being willing to take risks and to take chances. Pope Francis emphasizes this need to focus on the concrete because the concrete opens up possibilities, whereas the abstract can paralyze. If we're constantly on our computer, constantly looking at the news, constantly considering, you know, or on social media outlets, uh, we might be paralyzed by a number of things. Our um, incapacity to respond, our, uh, you know, lack of appreciation, you know, it could be a number of things, but, it's like the con in the concrete, something is born, you know, a, a relationship. I think that's a key is like we need to find ways to cultivate meaningful relationships. And relationships require contact with people. They require time. I, you said this on one of your podcasts, Malcolm, that's a beautiful insight that relationships, like authentic relationship and community requires mutual work. Like we need to work together on some level. We need to be engaged in some kind of labor. And that's why I love the garden because it can involve people in so many different ways. Um, working on a, uh, a project in which they all are invested, they all can benefit. But there's something about like hard work that brings about a, a meaningful relationship and a solidarity with the other person that a cup of coffee can't do at a coffee house. You know, like I appreciate that. I go to coffee houses and I love getting together with people. But when you're on a, when you're on service together, when you're in service together, or you're on mission together, and you're living in poverty in some level, like I, I mentioned about those service trips at BC, those relationships that formed over that week or two were so much deeper and more meaningful than relationships that I could have had over cups of coffee for the whole semester. You know, it was just like wow, like we connected on this deeper level because of the circumstances. So I think that's something like, wow, how, how can we begin to cultivate meaningful relationships that are not just surface level, that are not just like superfluous, um, unnecessary? You know, how do we get back to what is necessary and engaging people where they're at? And I think that that's only going to happen with the poor or people who are in, in that place where they, they need other people. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why Pope Francis says possibilities open up on the periphery. Um, you know, that's where the, the, a new future can emerge because it's basically decimated. I remember reading a, um, a revelation from Jesus to one of, uh, one of the saints where he said, upon ruins, I build magnificently. And I think he was speaking specifically in reference to a soul like when we are humbled, so deeply humbled that 
you know, we let go of our, our ideas, our pride, our vanity. And like, it's like, wow, like we're just kind of rock bottom. It's like, that's where Jesus can build something beautiful in our lives. It's like, it requires that kind of surrender and that recognition of our incapacity. But in a similar way, it's like, I think about that with God working in places that are, that are somewhat ruined, you know, that have been abandoned, where institutions have left, uh, companies have left, have failed the people. Um, and there's a whole lot of that in America. But I think, at least for me and a lot of my people that I'm aware of, you know, that's not where a lot of jobs are. That's not where a lot of economic security is. It's really, I think, an invitation to, to be on mission. And again, that's, of course, a, a huge theme of Pope Francis's pontificate, that we need to be a church on mission, you know, and are we going to be on mission in, in wealthy places? I mean, yeah, we can always be on mission wherever we are, but I think perhaps the more, um, the, the greater call and the place that are really, the places that are crying out to us, you know, God heard the cry of his people, Israel oppressed in Egypt. It's like, are we hearing the cry of people who are oppressed in this country or, or abroad? And are we, are we showing up in a concrete way? Like God showed up in a concrete way with, with and through Moses to liberate the people from their oppression. So again, we have to be careful about like, oh, we're the Moses, we're coming in and we're going to liberate. I think that that's not the attitude that Pope Francis wants us to take, but rather like we're willing to hear the cry of the people and with God's, you know, presence with us, with God's um, initi initiative, you know, God takes the initiative moving us. We can, we can begin to just like show up and, and be like, we're available. You know, we're here. We're, we're your brothers and we're your sisters. We don't, you know, we want to walk with you in some way. The amazing thing is that Moses, of course, wasn't that type. He wasn't like the, the great fix at all. I mean, I guess what's interesting is he started out that way, right? He shows up as, you know, he, he's, he's been rescued. He's been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He grows up. He goes out, he sees an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, kills the Egyptian, and then the next day he goes out, he sees two Israelites fighting, tries to intervene, settle their quarrel, doesn't work out, he flees into the desert, and, you know, he's just out there, and then suddenly he hears the burning bush and God saying, you're going to go and set the people free. And by this point, he apparently has learned a little something, and he's like, you know, I'm going to go and set the people free? Like, this is, this is impossible. Who, who am I? Yeah. Right. But the whole point, of course, is that Moses isn't going to free the people. God's going to work through Moses. Mm -hmm. He says, well, you know, here's your staff. You can turn it into a serpent. You're going to, God's going to work through him as a tool, even though the tool realizes very clearly. And God, of course, realizes that like by himself, there's no way this is going to happen. There's no way Pharaoh's going to let the people go. There's no way to get them across the desert. There's no way they're going to take over the promised land. It's just, it's absolutely impossible. But in the end, despite a certain amount of, of haggling there with God, trying to convince God that he wasn't the right guy. Moses accepts the task and carries the task. All, because it's, it's, it's only God's work. And then I was thinking too about your, your talking about, you know, building on ruins. In Isaiah, there's a line that uh, you'll, they will be called the restorers of the ruined home, says the, the rebuilders of the breach. Um, mm -hmm. That's supposed to be our job, that we're, you know, like 
just like we're supposed to be one with Christ. And as Christ came into the ruin, the fallen humanity to raise it up, we're supposed to allow Christ to work through us to, to raise that, to ra- help, help raise that world up. But again, not like we can't do it. If we think we're, you know, like we're going to do it, you know, it, it's, it's hopeless. And, and that was, you know, like thinking about that work. So working together. So instead of going to people and saying, like, here I am. I'm going to, you know, do this thing. Working together with, as you're saying, you know, like it's important that we work together. And we work together to heal the world. And that, um, in Let Us Dream, pages 30 and 31, Pope Francis talks about how uh, it's a mistake to think that we can be well in a world that's sick. You know, we can think, oh, you know, like all, like, well, the problems of the world don't really concern me because, like, I'm healthy. And, of course, this is in a more metaphorical sense, not just in a, in a standard medical sense. If the world is sick, then we're sick because we're part of the world. We're, we're all united. Uh, it reminds me of um, there was a story about this tribe in the Amazon. This doctor had went in to start a clinic, and he said that when someone brought a sick villager in for him to see. They didn't say, this person is sick. They said, doctor, my village is sick. Hmm. Um, Because they were a much more, as any pre-modern people were, they were a much more communal people. Uh, And and they, anyway, knew this truth that Pope Francis is saying, you can't be well in a world that's sick. So because because we're all, we're called on to be the, the restorers of the ruins. And if we're not, then we are the destroyer by that same logic. If we're not playing our part, we're part of the sickness. So that, yeah, we, ha- we need to bring people together to work and not in the sense of like we're going to, you know, direct all these people. That oftentimes what will probably end up happening if, if what Pope Francis is saying here is that when, when we go out to the peripheries, we'll learn more we will be able to help in the work. But first and foremost, of course, it's God's work through us. And then it's not just through us, it's God's work through us, all of us, uh, that that come together to heal the sickness of the world. Yeah, amen. You know, for me, just maybe as a, as a closing thought, um, I, I, I'm thinking of Pope Francis, you know, in his, the first couple pages, he is lauding the, um, the people who during COVID gave their lives in service and lost their lives in order to um, promote the life of another and perhaps save it. He, he talks about this theme of helping others. Um, they did not prefer saving their own lives to saving others. And they paid the price of love. Um, whether or not they were conscious of it, their choice testified to a belief that it is better to live a shorter life serving others than a longer one resisting that call. These are the saints next door who have awoken something important in our hearts, making credible once more what we desire to instill by our preaching. They are the antibodies to the virus of indifference. They remind us that our lives are a gift and we grow by giving of ourselves, not preserving ourselves, but losing ourselves in service. What a sign of contradiction 
to the individualism and self-obsession and lack of solidarity that so dominate our wealthier societies. Could these caregivers, sadly gone from us now, be showing us the way we must now rebuild? We just read in, or we heard in one of the Gospels, how Jesus says, um, those who seek to save their lives will lose it. But those who lose their lives for my sake and for the sake of eternal, or for the sake of the gospel, will save it. You know, I, it's, it's such a beautiful, you know, it turns everything upside down in our world, you know, when we take on that mindset. But you were referring to this, Malcolm, like, as we begin to respond to the impulses that God puts on our heart to go out and service without counting the cost, we, we become an example, a contradiction to the self-obsession of the world around us, but also an inspiration for others to do the same. It makes me think of how the kingdom of God, the kingdom of love, spreads through example, through the examples that we live, the lives that we live, and going out to serve another. I know that I'm struck when I see somebody doing a good deed, going out of their way to help somebody. And I think it's something that this is how society is really going to be rebuilt. It's not going to be with new buildings, new landscapes. It's going to be with a whole new attitude that's informed by the gospel, inspired by love, and is committed to the people around us, you know, and, and committed to something greater than ourselves. You know, that's another thing that Pope Francis uh, says in the joy of the gospel, you know, that, um, you know, we're, we're called to something so much greater than ourselves. And in America, our consumer society really encourages us to just focus on ourselves. You know, I, I, I just to kind of finish this, I, I think of the speech of um, in Braveheart before their like first major, major battle with the British. He's like on, on horseback and people are starting to, the soldiers are starting to leave because they, um, they see the enormity of the British army before them and really the, the small possibility that they will be victorious at all. And um, Braveheart, you know, the uh, Mel Gibson, gives this really impassioned speech about, yeah, you can go now and save your life for a little while, but towards the end of your life, will you not regret having given your life for, for the sake of freedom. Something along those lines. I mean, obviously it's a lot greater than that, but in the speech, I mean, um, and the point. But it makes us think like, wow, on our deathbed, we want to look back and like, I gave myself to a worthy cause. I did not sit on the sidelines and just seek my own comfort and preserve my life for what? You know, for a comfortable, a comfortably numb existence in which we're probably enslaved by a greater power spiritually or materially no rather like let's let's put ourselves on the battlefield you know the metaphoric battlefield of fighting for something that's greater you know something that's beautiful and together you know and even if we die in the battle we're, we're like a martyr to something greater a martyr to love and that's what i think pope francis is pointing out with those who do, weren't content to lock themselves in um but but uh, or to, you know, they, they didn't shy away from the danger of meeting the world in this time of crisis. 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that uh, concluding note there. And on a, on a like a practical note, since I like to, to say something practical here, um, you know, like I guess you know we've been talking about how we don't have answers and how we need to people to work together. And so I encourage listeners, um, you know, if you've got ideas, thoughts, we really do want to hear from you. I want this to be a really collaborative project and with as many people as possible involved and involved in, in these discussions and in eventually starting to work towards more practical um, goals, towards more practical expressions of these ideas in the real world where we can work for yeah, for the good of those others, instead of, you know, thinking, well, I'm doing fairly well, at least for the moment, to really, um, to really put ourselves out there in, in self-sacrificing love for all those other people who are, who are not, um, not so fortunate, perhaps, as us, and to use those things that God has given us in the service of others. So thanks so much, uh, Peter, for joining me. It's been a great conversation. Thanks, Malcolm. 